1: Hello and welcome to LawPod. My name is Julia Hunter and across the table I have Professor McLachlan from Queen's University Belfast and Professor Wills from Ulster University. Uh, Please tell us a little bit about yourselves.
0: Um, Professor of Film Studies and also a practitioner, so I, I make documentaries and Mostly, I've been working in the area of what you might call participatory practice documentary, so working with people whose stories involve a degree of trauma in the past, and therefore that that methodology is important to bring them on board in a way that they trust the process.
2: Fantastic. I'm, this is Siobhan Wills, and I'm a professor of law at the Transitional Justice Institute, Ulster University, and... Uh, I study law, mainly international law, and I've been focusing on peacekeeping. My PhD was on protection of civilians, the obligations of peacekeepers, and I've been looking at one or other aspect of protection um, from the obligations of peacekeepers role for ever since, which is a long time. Um, For the past five years, I've been looking at use of force, uh, use of deadly force in particular by peacekeeping missions, the rules of engagement, and um, the policy approaches of the UN to that issue and um, the fieldwork in the in that context has been in Haiti.
1: This is about the documentary that uh, has been a big project for both of you um, called It Stays With You. Can you tell us a little bit about this documentary and what happened in Haiti and why were the United Nations there?
2: The documentary came out of um, some research that I was doing that was funded by the British Academy on the rules of engagement of peacekeeping missions. And I wanted to look at the issue in Haiti in particular because it's a country in which there has been no armed conflict during the deployment of the mission. The mission has been deployed there a long time and there was uh, reports of uh, extreme use of force. The reports came from the mission itself that they used intense use of force against criminal gangs. So I wanted to look into that question Well, Siobhan
0: had done one or two field trips to Haiti and wanted to do some recordings of the victims of these raids, um, people who had lost 10-year-old daughters, uncles, Um, who had never received any visits from the United Nations, from the police, from journalists. And she thought by recording their stories, that's a way of bringing them back to the United Nations to face up to its responsibilities. And we went out out initially to record some testimonies, but fairly quickly realised that there is a documentary film here. Um, There's enough people, it's one community, um, there's a narrative, and that the context should be provided as well. And so when we went out, we... We filmed and brought that back and edited together a piece which had some more interviews from legal experts to back up, to support what was being said. It was made in a participatory way without necessarily looking at balanced investigation. We tried the UN, there was very little response, so we focused around the people who had lost somebody or themselves seriously injured or lost their house or whatever. Um, And we have been screening at since its premiere in Port-au-Prince last June. Uh,
1: What inspired you to embark upon this creation?
0: Um, Well, I I mean, I'll start and then you can take it over. The creation of the film was, Siobhan had seen some of the work that I had done and also we'd both heard about people in some African countries who had recorded testimonies of sexual abuse survivors uh, which had been brought to the United Nations, which had an impact. And so we thought... If we can't bring the participants to New York, we can at least bring their testimonies, their stories. And we regard film, and we've been reasonably successful within very, I suppose, strict limitations. We have been uh, successful in opening up some doors ajar, opening up dialogues, um, opening up question and answer responses. And so the film has had a limited success, but it is beginning to achieve what we set out to do, within certain conditions, of course.
2: I think uh, one of the reasons for approaching Cahal to to think about making a film and not just recording testimonies is that uh, it's our view, um, and this is based on my analysis of international law and our collective view of what happened and the testimonies, that there is a, a breach of quite serious uh, human rights obligations. And it's quite challenging to bring those issues to the United Nations and say this needs an investigation. Um, and I don't think uh, documents really hit too hard. Um, at uh, They tend to be ignored, skimmed over and just, uh, well, this is all very well. But it's only when you uh, see face to face um, and someone telling you what it meant that their daughter was killed or um, their husband was killed or that their father was killed or that the house that they were in when he was sheltering tiny children was completely destroyed whilst they were inside it and the next door neighbour house was also destroyed and three people killed inside it, what this kind of traumatization means. Because there are lots and lots of reports that document this. It isn't completely new news, but it doesn't seem to get to a point where the United Nations and the powers that be um, feel the need to address it. So I thought that, well, we both thought that um, making a film would bring the stories more viscerally to the attention of the United Nations.
1: Absolutely. Um, how did you get the ball rolling on this sort of filming and documentary? Um,
2: well, uh, we did it by me being very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> In that, um, I, Obviously, I'd been researching the legal issues for a whole year before we started um, m- doing the film. And so I'd read quite a an amount about um, previous research that had been done in Haiti. Um, I didn't know the people who, who were involved in doing it, but I found their email addresses and just emailed them and asked uh, if they could advise on anybody, any contacts in Haiti, contacts in Haiti uh, that we could work with. And of course, most people ignored us, but some people didn't ignore us, and so we uh, got a very good uh, interpreter, a uh, fixer. Uh, who was able to take us into She was She's trusted by the people in Boerneuf because she worked there for a long time. And um, through her, um, there was a meeting arranged with the community leaders in uh, the Boerneuf neighbourhood. That's about six or seven men, really, I would say. And um, we had a meeting with them and discussed what uh, we wanted to do and... Uh, Discuss some of. They asked us questions about what we could achieve, and we were quite honest about questions such as, uh, obviously, there are people looking for justice, and we had to uh, we had to say that there is, we cannot promise justice, but we said that we would try and promote the issues as strongly as we could. And um, after that meeting, uh, the community leaders basically gave us the go ahead not to to make the film, but to uh, the go ahead to talk more widely in the community and so we came back the next day and had uh, a meeting with uh, anyone who wanted to show up and um, after that people who wanted to be involved in the film because they had lost someone or because um, a relative had been injured or um, because the house was destroyed or property destroyed, uh, they came to the community leaders and we were put in contact.
0: Yeah, I think that that question of managing expectations was the first hurdle Mm -hmm. because people, quite rightly, with having no one come near them for 10 years since the devastation that they'd uh, experienced, thought that at last they were going to, here's whites coming in with their cameras, we're going to get something out of this. And we had to negotiate that very carefully because we can't deliver justice to them. We don't have those resources. But what we could do is offer some form of public acknowledgement. And that was something that they began to understand and appreciate. And so when we screened it at the Haiti University and at the Cultural Centre in Port-au-Prince, the participants were there and the representative was on the panel discussing. So we've tried to involve them as much as possible. And we've returned since. And we're making, as well as the film, we have a website. It stays with you. And we're very shortly going to have um, another set of... Short films made by them, addressed addressed directly to the United Nations, um, what they want from the United Nations.
1: Fantastic. So you have maintained ongoing interaction and communication with the local participants with hopes of perhaps creating additional footage and additional videos?
0: We have we have done that as much as we can within the limitations of the AHRC grant, and I suppose when you first asked what enabled us to do this, an AHRC grant enabled us to do this, and that's about to run out. So our contact will become a little bit more precarious and tenuous eventually, Um, but we hope the website will be a way that they can access and keep in touch with us as well.
1: In the uh, screening that I attended, that was hosted at the Queen's University uh, Moot Court a couple of weeks ago, you touched upon aspects of accountability and advocacy. Um, what do you hope that this documentary achieves for the future uh, in terms of those sort of those themes?
2: Yes. Well, what I hope and what <laughs> the hopes might be bigger than what is uh, actually achievable. Um, initially, I suppose I I have to admit to a degree of naivety. Um, I've n- never imagined that the United Nations is going to fall over backwards offering compensation. But I did think that, uh, because I think it's quite clear from the film that there is there are issues there that require investigation, um, whatever else might have come out of it or um, whatever else conclusions, whatever you might find, but that there is at least the basis that there should be an investigation. With, I mean, 10 people talking about, uh, clearly, um, people that should not have been targeted being killed, children, several of them children. Um, so I, I envisage that if the United Nations saw this, they would at least respond with an acknowledgement that that's needed in an investigation. They might be slow about doing the investigation, but an acknowledgement that there's an issue here to be examined. And uh, the... I... I It's not that I don't know people in the UN Department of Peacekeeping or the UN Office of Legal Affairs. I was based there in 2015-16 doing research um, that was funded by the British Academy. So I was expecting at least some acknowledgement that there ought to be an investigation. And what has happened is that a complete stonewalling that nobody replies to my emails. It's just completely ignored. Um, The president of the Methodist Church of Ireland has written a letter which has been... uh, more or less ignored, um, so that has been frustrating and disappointing, and we have had to think about different ways of approaching it. Um, and I think the the most uh, useful way of going forward is to try and raise awareness through. Um, showing the film and talking about it, and trying to get people to write to the United Nations and just uh, identify the issues. They can refer to our website or the film or even contact us uh, for for further information, email addresses on the website, um, to write to the United Nations if there are enough people writing to the United Nations saying this should be investigated. Um, I think that's one way of um, pushing the... The issue further. I think there are two things that should be done. One is an investigation of what happened and also there should be a reform of policy so that it shouldn't uh, take place again.
0: We've had to manage our own expectations. My own naivety has been that this film contains such pointed testimonies that it would be seen um, and welcomed at film festivals particularly human rights film <coughs> Excuse me, human rights film festivals and <clears throat> I think my own naivety is that the testimonies of these people are, are poignant enough that this film would be distributed and exhibited at, let's say, human rights film festivals. We're finding that we're having to rethink our target audience, and it's primarily the most receptive have been rights groups, not festivals, and university law and film departments and it's been shown internationally and is due to be shown internationally quite widely from Tokyo to Geneva to Australia and I think it's because it's testimony based it's not narrative based it's not a story of one or two people and I think if you look at the way that film films documentary films in particular are being forced into much more formulaic ways of telling stories um, that was that was a certain naivety at our Part at the beginning, that in fact, no matter how powerful the testimony is, if you don't fit it in with a particular structure and formula, it's less attractive to film festivals. However, the the people we are contacting, the screenings we are getting, are proving quite productive, and we're hoping to lead up to. And this comes into your point: uh, the Geneva Human Rights Commission side events at the end of June are going to screen it and it can only be screened by affiliated organisations, so we're very lucky to get a a step in there. And we have uh, some funding left for a social media campaign, so we're going to use the months of May and June to try and build up a very focused campaign pressure on the United Nations.
1: So there is this sort of, I guess, overarching idea that documentary can be used as you know, a form of activism, or as a legal tool to to form social change. Uh, did can you discuss a couple of points on on sort of that those particular themes?
2: Yes, this um, point was made actually by um, the professors that were on the panel at our first screening in Ireland. That was at the Royal Irish Academy last June, and um, one of the panelists. Panelists, sorry, uh, one of the panelists, <laughs> uh, Professor Ethan Nolan. Um, she She drew attention to the possibility that this film could become be useful as a means of advocacy. And Professor Malally also mentioned it. Um, in thinking about making this film, I actually thought about it. We thought about it. So in thinking about making this film, we thought about it in terms of using it, possibly as an advocacy tool, because uh, it's an issue that needs to be addressed in the, the lives of the people there. Uh, need need some uh acknowledgement of what went wrong and also of uh the need to reform the policies but there the issue has been addressed in film but in um in the sort of films that i don't think the United Nations would take any notice of because they're um quite graphic and um they're presented through a political lens a left wing lens um and i think it's However powerful and how whether uh, even however true uh, the the elements of those stories coming through in those films might be I don't think it's the, the clearest and strongest way of targeting um, change at the UN so we focused on making the film on the on the legal framework on the legal issues what are violations of international human rights law and Allow the the we didn't tell the, the participants what to say, but their stories highlighted matters that were clearly a violation of international human rights law in our view. And therefore, when making the film, we focused on the their testimony and the legal framework so that we could target it at the UN in that way. We're not addressing the politics of it. We're not addressing wider issues. We didn't present any graphic footage that might um, derail the argument into in, into different uh, lines of thought. So we were very, very focused on presenting testimonies and f- fitting them into the legal framework as a means of targeting uh, change, tar- tar- using the film um, to target To target the UN and uh, human rights bodies to push for recognition of what happened and for reform of the policies
0: Yeah I think just to to confirm that point about social activism, campaigning advocacy, the subtle differences could be that some films that have been made in Haiti about this issue are very powerful um, horrendous footage Um, they tend to be as you say campaigning very rhetorical, very heavy editorially, um, and do a very good job within their own terms. We wanted something which was much more an advocacy for the people who are affected. So while we have clearly an editorial position on it and we frame it and we do all the mediation that's necessary, as much as possible we minimised. We had no voiceover, we had only text, we had minimal text, minimal context, and the 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 two thirds of the film are the voices of the participants telling their story. And so we were advocates along with them of their point of view rather than trying to bring our own editorial position into it.
1: How can we as podcast podcast listeners help spread the word?
2: Well, one thing is to email the United Nations, Jean-Pierre Lacroix, the Under Secretary General for Peacekeeping, Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General. Now, uh, Secretary General Guterres. It is part of his um, campaign. For he was only appointed in the end of last year, and it's part of his campaign is to increase accountability and transparency for the United Nations. And this seems to me it's very early in his uh, time as Secretary General that this is something that uh, could be part of his legacy if it was um, if it was brought to his attention. So emails to uh, Secretary General Guterres. Um, uh, addressing uh, the Human Rights Council um, in in June we will be promoting the issues and showing the film in June but if uh, anyone whether here in Northern Ireland or whether you're listening elsewhere in Ireland or in England or in Europe uh, to contact uh, your relevant uh, bodies in your states that would have a voice at the Human Rights Council session to request that this is this issue is raised um, so those are two things. If you happen to be a high-profile person um, that is, uh, has the ability uh, and is uh, interesting in, or people know you enough to be uh, able to get an op-ed into, say, The Guardian or The New York Times, um, that would be wonderful. And if you are able, want to do it and but don't have time to do all the research, I'm very happy to provide uh, all the materials for that.
0: Yes, I think the website www.itstayswithhugh.com will provide some does provide some of this information and we'll add more as the month goes on as we employ a social media campaigner we're of a certain age where we've got an internet site we're probably going to have a Facebook page soon and then eventually we'll hit Twitter Um, so but the website is the place um, for anyone who's interested in following up to get more information
1: and just to repeat for the listeners, that website is www.itstayswithyou.com. Uh, Professor Wells, Professor McLaughlin, thank you very much for joining us at Law Pod today. Again, the website, if anyone is interested to look into this further, is www.itstayswithyou.com. Uh, have a good day, everyone. Stay warm outside. Bye-bye. Thank you, Julie. Thank you. You have been listening to Law Pod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University, Belfast. This episode was produced by Julian Hunter and Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Thanks to Professor McLaughlin and Professor Wills. You can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook and Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Julia Hunter, and this was Law